self-taught amateur, Rosemary Veery designed gardens for luminaries like His Royal Highness the Prince of Wales, Oscar de Laurenta, and Sir Elton John. She began writing books in 1980 at the age of 62 and completed 18 popular works. My guest today is Barbara Paul Robinson, the author of a new biography, Rosemary Veery, The Life and Lessons of a Legendary Gardener. Barbara Paul Robinson has become quite well known for Brush Hill, the garden she has made with her husband, the painter Charles Robinson, in northwestern Connecticut. What began in 1971 as tidying up the grounds of a weekend retreat for her and her family quickly grew into a passion for plants and gardening. In 1991, Barbara took a sabbatical from her work as a partner in a New York City law firm to go to England and learn more about gardens and gardening and to work at Barnsley House, the world-famous garden of Rosemary Veery in the heart of the Cotswolds. Not only did Barbara learn at the side of Mrs. Veery, they became lifelong friends until the death of her mentor in 2001. And I'm so happy to welcome Barbara Robinson to Kendrew's Real Dirt. Oh, thank you for inviting me. You are welcome, and I want to mention that you have a new book on Rosemary, Rosemary Veery, The Life and Lessons of a Legendary Gardener. And uh, it's it's a... For people who didn't know Rosemary Peary, it's really a, an exciting book to read about this person who happened to, quite late in life, change everything. She started gardening, and then she, at the age of 62, she started writing books, and I think she wrote about 18 books. Is that right. correct? Yeah, absolutely. Amazing. And these books really, they changed gardening they were British books, but also American books, and Rosemary became so popular as a speaker, and her books were so popular, and, but also really good and helpful. And I guess one of my favorites is The American Man's Garden, which was not one of her biggest successes, but I, I love that book, and it's so beautiful and tells wonderful stories of great gardeners in the United States. You have to interrupt me because I'm too excited. <laughs> well, I think I think you're right. Um, I think it was unusual for a British horticultural figure to admire and love American gardens and Americans and America. She had a very special relationship with America, and she never came here to tell us how to do it her way. Uh, she really validated Americans in creating their own style, using plants appropriate to their particular climate. Uh, somebody called her the great encourager, and I think she really she really was. And that was quite unusual um, and very special. That's interesting, because I, I did know Mrs. Veery, and I tr walking around with her and going to gardens, which I did a few times, I was so lucky to do that, I never actually saw her not like a garden. Yeah. Well, she never talked down to people. Mm -hmm. If you were serious, no matter how modest or how grand about your, you know, your your house and your garden, uh, she was excited to be talking to you about plants and what you were doing. And she, by her, by the way, even though she was a marvelous teacher and a great communicator, she was always learning. And the title of the book, The Life and Lessons of Rosemary Berry, she was learning all the time herself. And one of her big lessons, mentioning visiting gardens, Ken, was to never visit a garden without a notebook, <laughs> because she always was learning from wherever she went. And I think that that's a very important lesson for all of us. 
But, you know, I think, can I just come back to her life story a little bit, though? Um, what I think is so inspiring about the arc of her life, for all of us, not just people who garden, is the fact, as you said, that she came to this very late in life and was completely self-taught and self-made and self-promoted. As you say, wrote her first book at the age of 62 and then wrote 17 more in 20 years. Mm. So she proved really by her example that all of us can have a very rich and full later chapter in our lives. And I think that's a very important example for, for everyone, not just gardeners. And in spite of a lot of things, because for many years in her, in her, at the end of her life, she was not well, but it no. didn't seem to stop her. <laughs> no, well, she, <laughs> she was a force, um, very, very hardworking and very, uh, very disciplined. Her father had been in the military, so she was very stoic, very stiff upper lip, um, and when she could barely walk, she dragged herself to America several times at the end of her life. And in fact, as you know from the book, the last garden she did was in Kentucky uh, for a wonderful family, Antony and Angela Beck. And uh, she died about two months after designing that garden. Mm. Amazing, amazing fortitude. It is amazing. And something that I noticed also about her when when she thought people weren't looking, <laughs> even though she was, I could say, a taskmaster, especially at her own garden, but she was obsessed with gardens, but she also was obsessed with nurturing, nurturing yeah. plants and gardens and seeing everything, as you said with a notebook, seeing something new. She was so excited about something new, anything new. Right. And... Uh, if she saw a plant that needed watering, she'd water it <laughs> or have somebody water it. Yeah, well, she, she, one of her lessons, which she repeated all the time, was use your eyes. Use your eyes. She was always editing. Something had grown too big for a space. She was ruthless about cutting it out and doing something else, moving on. Uh, and one of the important lessons she taught me was to take risks. Uh, lawyers aren't good at that. <laughs> that was a very profound lesson. Now you're supposed to know the answer. If you ask the question, make sure you know the answer. But not in that case. Uh, so tell me about what happened in 1991 to you. Well, I had, to my surprise, really, I had no interest in gardening uh, particularly. I was busy practicing law, raising a family, commuting back and forth weekends to my country house, and had grown up in the suburbs and had never really paid any attention to gardens. And then um, when we first got here, as you say, we were just, we call that era the clearances. We were just clearing everything out. Uh, Charlie, plant, he just grew up in the country, so he planted a vegetable garden, and then he went off to Brazil for a month and left me behind. And he said, check up on it. Well, I had no idea what he meant by that, but oh. I went out there, and up came these seeds. And I'd never seen a seed come up. So I just, it was the biggest miracle I'd ever witnessed, other than having my own children. So <laughs> I just thought it was fabulous, and I was hooked, and it went on from there. So 20 years later, I was very eager for a little formal training, because I had never studied anything about gardening. And uh, I couldn't find a course that fit in this relatively short time slot of my once-in-a-lifetime sabbatical from my law firm, Dental Voice in Plimpton. 
And a friend of mine suggested, well, why don't you try to go work in a great garden? And I thought, that's a good idea. So I wrote to the two most famous women gardener writers I had ever heard of, Rosemary Veery and Penelope Hobhouse, and asked if I could come work in their respective gardens for free. And they, they each actually said yes. Uh-huh. Uh, so it was, quite, uh, it was quite remarkable. And I then went to England. I did work briefly for Penny. But I spent about a month living in Rosemary's gardener's cottage, freezing cold, April, stone, no heat. Uh, it's what the Brits call character forming. <laughs> <laughs> but I and I was just one of the gardeners. This wasn't any fancy program. I worked like a dog, and she was a very tough boss. But it was just um, really very, very special. You don't get to kind of drop out of your life and just move into another culture. And uh, it was. I just learned enormous amounts, not just about gardening, but about character and life. Well, I, I have to know what some of those things were. I, I know that right from the start you were, well, you were put to work right from the start, and she had two gardeners at the time, uh, brothers, and uh, who I'm sure respected and somewhat feared her. <laughs> <laughs> they were her boys. She treated them like her boys, and um, they were great gardeners, though, because she had trained them. They were just marvelous. Well, when, when you're walking through her garden on, the, on those early days and she points at something and says, dead had a bed, what, do, what does that mean to you? What did that mean to you? <laughs> well, the thing, um, the, the boys pronounced it dead-edding, mm-hmm. dead-edding. Every morning we did the dead-edding. Um, and the first time I did this, her borders were intensely planted, very dense. And we were supposed to deadhead just the particular bloom, not, you know, cut a plant to the ground. Very, very, very delicate work. But the first day I, I tried to do this, I thought, well, how, I, how am I going to reach my big booted foot <laughs> over all those beautiful plants and step down in the middle of them to reach this deadhead thing I need to cut off? And I was kind of terrified. And worse, I thought, oh, my goodness, what if I fall? I'll smash the whole border to this. <laughs> And anyway, the boy said to me afterwards, well, you can't, you can't make omelets without breaking a few eggs. <laughs> so back I went, and that's what we did. First thing every morning, we did the deadheading, and it was um, to keep her garden looking beautiful all the time. She had so many visitors. She had, by the time she died, she had 30,000 people each year coming Incredible. from all over the world to see her garden. Yeah, amazing. Well, the garden was in a style that, it's funny because, as you write in the book, a lot of her success was due to timing. And she was lucky because when she started to design gardens, the economy was getting a little bit better, and she did get a lot of work. And here we are in a situation again that's stressed by recession, and people are that I talk to, they it's back to no maintenance and minimalism, just like it was before she started. You know, it's... the it's lawn and little care and and things that are not very interesting. But her garden was far from low maintenance. It was a high maintenance garden in a style that maybe will come back. I don't know. We don't see it except in public gardens. Very high maintenance. But I but here's here's one of her most famous pieces of her garden that I think even in this era is very important. 
and that was her protege, her beautiful vegetable garden. Because I think people um, are very interested in growing their own food, in knowing the source of their food, in knowing that it's healthy and not contaminated um, and hopefully organic. So, it, and in renewed interest in growing vegetables. And of course, her message was that you can grow vegetables, but they can also look beautiful as well as producing food for the family. And I think that's a very profound and continuing message that still resonates. I mean, even our president has a vegetable garden at the mm-hmm. White House. Mm-hmm. Oh. And my granddaughter, who's nine, Sky, <laughs> has her own vegetable garden, and she's had one since she was four. And she's very, very in charge of it and very proud of it. And she herself, her garden was on the garden tour this year. So it's, it's very um, gratifying to see the younger generation uh, expressing interest. But I think the vegetable piece of her story is, is profoundly important and of interest to people, even if they don't want to do high-maintenance flower gardens. And, uh, of course, she put some flowers in her veg garden. And one garden she designed that has not yet been built, which I hope someday will be, is a protege for the New York Botanical Garden. Ooh. So that was, it, the site's all identified, the plans are there. And, um, you know, interesting that a British woman would be asked to design a public garden for an American institution. Hmm. And by the way, she left all her garden plans to the New York Botanical Garden. And all my interviews will go there, too, to be a piece of oral history uh, in in New York. Well, you're you're talking about the protege, which is which became probably the most famous part of her entire garden, which was only four acres in uh, the Cotswolds in Gloucestershire. Right. Uh, and when I think of that garden, when I picture it in my mind, I picture the structure. It ha- it's, it's funny, it's something about all of her gardens. There was a sort of informality within formality. And, the, and having so much structure in a vegetable garden, something everybody can do, it's actually not hard, especially right. the way she did it. I mean, she, of course it was high maintenance and the, the uh, fruit trees were clipped and and made into wonderful shapes, but edging, structure, and then things can go wild inside. And she wouldn't just have things, I say things, but it's always colorful leaves and texture and and all edible. Well, and she emphasized the fact that you can design a vegetable garden. You don't have to grow them in rows. Actually, it's quite efficient to grow them in blocks and to intersperse different vegetables with each other, like leeks with sticking up among beautiful colored lettuces. So uh, all of that. My um, granddaughter's garden has two lattice arches, very tall arches, that my husband Charlie made for her, and we grow pole beans up over them. And so it's a very efficient way to grow climbing beans, and it's also very beautiful to walk through them. So that, that's the kind of lesson she, she really wanted to impart. It's, it's illogical, but hardly ever done, right. and yet so logical. Uh, well, what are some of the other things that you took away from your one month there? In your very st- I, I can picture you freezing <laughs> in that little, <laughs> yes. and then driving on the, on the other side of the road. I almost said wrong side, the other side of the road. Uh, did you have to get your own food and everything? Oh, sure. Oh, absolutely. And it's very funny because, you know, they say that the Americans and the Brits are two cultures divided by a common language. (laughs) And that's very true because 
I went the first time I went to the grocery store, I just needed to buy a sack of sugar for my tea, you know. And what I thought I was buying sugar looked like sugar to me was actually powdered sugar, the confectioner sugar mm-hmm. when I got home because they don't use the same words. So, excuse me, it was a learning experience um, to be in a different culture. But more importantly, I, I was trying to figure out how she managed to have her garden look great in all the seasons, which was another one of her big lessons. I think her book, The Garden in Winter, for its moment, it may now seem obvious, but when she wrote that, saying gardens can and should look beautiful even in the winter, that was quite revolutionary for its time. Mm -hmm. And so I was quite fascinated to go and see how did she have the same little piece of ground look beautiful in all the seasons. Because when I tried to plant in layers, she said she planted in layers. Mm-hmm. When I planted things over on top of each other, they all just died. <laughs> yeah, they killed each other out, or the thugs won. So I wanted to know how she did that. Well, I found out, um, and that was, and I still do this a bit. That I, you don't, people don't have to, but you plant the tulips in the fall. They come up in the spring, and then you rip them out mm-hmm. and you replant where they were with something else that you've been growing on in the greenhouse and then you pull that out and plant something else for the fall and so on and so forth so that was fascinating to me i had no idea that a perennial border could be perennial but also have a lot of annual massaging so do you have a place uh, at your garden in connecticut where you grow things on to be plugged in yes (laughs) of course because I'm, I hear her talking to me all the time in my garden. You know, she she came often, and after we got to be friends, um, and so I hear her voice in my ear when I'm not living up to her perfectionist standards. <laughs> I plant, uh, I take out the tulips every year and throw them away. She would have, being um, frugal, would have planted them on and grown them on, and then dug them up and replanted them. I just buy new ones, but. Um, and then I plant dahlias and cannas and um, cordylines and form, you know, tropical things mm-hmm. or annuals like um, broalia and um, cleome and other things to fill in the gaps. So that's, that's really been a lot of fun, but it does mean that your garden is constantly being gardened. Yeah. You're working in it. Well, I think a lot of people are frustrated because they see beautiful borders, especially in public gardens and in, in nice, fancy private gardens. And they think that these waves of color and incredible layers just are all there. And how do you fit them together? And how can they be there? And how can it be continuous color from spring through fall or even through the winter? And it's, as you say, it, people, things move, plants move. They come right. out, they go back in, Something's you have something at the ready to go into one place to fill. Sometimes, I'm sure you've done this, you'll even take a pot and stick it in if you have right. a hole. Sure, sure, but also um, plants that are not movable, like trees and shrubs, which she, of course, also incorporated in her uh, borders, grow. And no matter how much you prune them at some point, perhaps it's time for them to leave or move. <laughs> I, so, um, Charlie, I, Charlie gave me a little picture of an old mid, middle ages moving of a tree with, you know, men and horses and, and big trolleys and so on. And the caption is, 
all Barbara's trees got wheels because <laughs> <laughs> my trees move a lot. <laughs> but uh, but but really, sometimes you just have to cut them down and be ruthless. And she she was very very good at that. And you think that you've learned learned that you've really learned to be ruthless. Yes. I, I'm saying it that way because I haven't learned that. Oh, it's hard because you love your plants. They're your, your babies, but, you know, they just get too big for the space, and um, you just have to. And then if you can make yourself do it at the end, usually you're very, very pleased. And besides, it's an opportunity to plant something else. Yes. And, of course, in, as we all do, and I know you do too, because I, your compost is famous <laughs> in its oh, way. Yeah. Well, I live on a gravel pit, so without compost, I couldn't have a garden. Well, that's that's one thing. At least when you remove something, it can be recycled, even in some form. Cause, uh, oh, sure. We, even tree. I mean, even woody things get chipped into you know wood chips and stuff that we use. Absolutely. Um, but she had the most marvelous compost heap. She she was a little early for the organic movement. She didn't speak the speak of you know, the environment and organic, but she was a country lady, so she knew that you had to feed the soil. And her compost heap, somebody told me I should do this, I don't know if I can, but uh, she had a living compost heap composed of chickens. Mm. Her chickens were in a big pen, and we would just fling all the clippings from the garden into the pen uh, every day, as long as they weren't poisonous or invasive, and she would fling in a little corn, and the chickens would scratch and poop all over this, and slowly but surely, the level of the chicken coop, the ground level, would rise over time. And then when the chickens, when it was high enough for the chickens to fly out over the top of the fence, her son would come with a big tractor scoop and scoop all the muck up. <laughs> and that was her compost. Really marvelous. Yes. Wonderful. <clears throat> well, you'll have to get started. <laughs> I need chickens. I don't have chickens. <laughs> I, I, I can completely understand that because... We do have critters, right? And it breaks your heart. And no matter, around here in the northwest corner of New Jersey, I have friends who have tried everything, and sooner or later, a bear or a raccoon or something gets in there, and it's, it's or a just, fox, yeah, fox in a, a fox. chicken coop. Yep. Yeah, actually, in the end, she did have to give up her chickens because the foxes came too much, and uh, and they took the chickens. So yeah, it's very heartbreaking. Well, believe it or not, we're almost out of time. Oh. <laughs> so, so much uh, fun talking to you. Thank you. Um, so now in the last minute or so, is there anything that you would like to add? I mean, we really haven't, we've been just having a conversation here, and I, I do want to remind people about the wonderful book, Rosemary Veery, The Life and Lessons of a Legendary Gardener. And, of course, I'll have a link on the com website uh, to find out more about the book. Uh, but the, the book is it's a biography. It's the entire life of Rosemary Bury and all this wonderful gardening advice that's woven through the entire book. But uh, Barbara, is there anything else you'd like to say? Well, I hope the book makes her come alive for the reader because among all her many traits, one of her, one of her often repeated lessons was it's a sin to be dull. She was never dull. <laughs> and so I, I tried, to, she was charming and vivacious, she could be difficult and demanding and all sorts of things like that, but really she was just so lively and so much fun and such a special spirit. So I hope that the book makes her come alive as a person, um, as well as describing her 
important work. And her books live on and I think are still important uh, in terms of teaching us all that, and this is what she would have said, you too can do it. After all, she did all by herself, taught herself. So you can do it. So just get on with it. Well, thank you so much for being my guest today. It's been great. My guest has been Barbara Robinson, Barbara Paul Robinson, and her new book is Rosemary Beery, The Life and Lessons of a Legendary Gardener, and it's all true. It's The Life and Lessons of a Legendary Gardener. Great subtitle. Thank you again. Thank you. Rosemary Beery was a great promoter. She knew how to publicize herself, and one thing that always impressed me She would welcome every photographer to come to her garden and take pictures, unlike a lot of people who think that's a big invasion of privacy. She was into promoting her work of art, and it worked. She had a great career. Join me again next week for another edition of Kendra Fogart, The Garden Show.